All right, let me invite you to find a Bible to turn to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 5 as we're going to return to our consideration of this great letter and see how it continues to hold up for us Jesus Christ as superior to all else. Uh, Jesus is all we need, friends. Um, Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation and the only way of salvation that will do. Uh, and if you have doubts about that reality, if you question whether or not men can be saved by some other means, if you have hope in any other place, even in your own heart and life, then the book of Hebrews is for you. In fact, the book of Hebrews is for all of us because we are all prone to wander from Christ and to seek means by which we might be saved otherwise. <clears throat> the title of this message is Our Great High Priest, Part 2. It's a pretty unoriginal title. <laughs> um, the last time was just Our Great High Priest. It was Part 1. Uh, and that is because we took up verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4, where the theme of the high priestly ministry of Christ is taken up in earnest by the author. We're now going to be in chapter 5, verses one through 10. Um, and, and, and these verses are interesting because while it is now, we're beginning a large section that's going to run all the way through like chapter 10 on specifically the superiority of the priestly ministry and office of Christ. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 here at the very beginning of that actually are the culmination of a section that is dealing with initially the two relationships that are necessary to the office of high priest and the exercise of um, the, the role of the high priest as mediator. Those two relationships that are being dealt with in this section that are coming to an end, this, it's being concluded kind of here in verse 10, are, are the relationship, number one, of the priest to God. And the argument in this section is that Jesus proved to be faithful in that relationship and the relationship of the priest to men in which Jesus proved to be supremely, supremely compassionate. Those things have been alluded to already in the text. So that if you go back up to chapter 2, verse 10, you see there it begins the discussion about the humiliation of Christ, who was made perfect through suffering. You see that language there. In order that he might bring many sons to glory... And that he might identify with those for whom he goes back to God and intercedes as brothers. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 11. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then if you go down to verses 17 and 18, that section there, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So you see, um, it has already been articulated just in general terms um, about Jesus' relationship to men and his identification with them as brothers and his ability then by way of his own suffering unto perfection of his office that he is able to sympathize with them. Um, when you get to chapter 3, for example, in 3.1, we're considered then to, uh, we're encouraged then to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Then from 3.1 through 4.13, the author deals primarily with his being our great apostle. 
That is Jesus' superior apostleship, the one who is sent from God to us. Beginning in verse 14 that we saw last time, as I said a moment ago, the author now takes up in earnest the second of those two realities we were encouraged to consider. And that is that he is not only our great apostle sent from God to us to lead us into rest, but he is our great high priest who goes for us and with us and on our behalf back to God in order to secure that rest and gain us, give us access to the rest that he seeks to lead us into. So that begins in verse 14 of chapter 4. You see that since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Notice in those verses in 15, he makes allusion once again immediately to the ability of Christ to sympathize with those he represents. For we do not have a high priest, this is verse 15 of chapter 4, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, has, become, has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Now, moving into the text that's before us this morning, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5, what he's going to do is he's going to now make substantial and specific arguments to substantiate that truth he has generally articulated in verses 14 to 16. He's our great high priest. He can sympathize. He serves in a superior way. Okay? He makes that statement. Now he moves to give specific consideration to defend those truths in verses 1 through 10. Um, He is going to point out that Jesus is not just a great high priest, but a greater high priest than any of the priests that have served before him. So he's going to make direct comparison to the sons of Levi, the sons of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. He is also then consequently going to prove him to be the greatest high priest because he's going to argue consequently that what he accomplishes by way of his priestly ministry, he accomplishes eternally and completely. So he's, he's going to argue with specific details now in verses 1 through 10 to help us understand why it is that we have a great high priest, the greatest high priest in Jesus Christ. Now before we read, just a couple of other comments. Let me tell you structurally in, 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 in these verses, it's very simple. I like simplicity and structure. Verses 1 through 4, he's going to give us a description of the office and the duties of the Old Testament high priests. Then in verses 5 to 10, he is going to apply that description of the office and the duties of the high priest, particularly to the person and work in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Okay, So he's going to apply that in verses 5 to 10. And it's very interesting because... What he does is he gives the two primary requirements for the office of high priest in verses 1 through 4. And then he takes them in reverse order, beginning with the one he gave last in verse 4. He picks that up and defends that and tells us how and explains it in verses 5 and 6. So, and, and then he works back out away from the middle. So the center of the text then is verse 5. And he moves away from it, arguing in reverse order for those requirements and office and duties that he gave us in verses 1 to 4. That'll make sense as we move through. I just wanted to kind of give you an idea of what we're doing. So what I want us then to consider, we're actually going to consider beginning in verse 5 and 6 and see where it correlates in the description of verses 1 through 4, that Jesus has a greater calling 
as high priest, that he has a greater identification with the people he represents, and that what he accomplishes is a greater benefit. Okay, so a greater calling, a greater identification, and a greater benefit to those people he represents to substantiate the claim that he is the greatest high priest. He's a great high priest as opposed to those that have come before. All right, that's enough introduction. Let's pray, and then we're going to read the text, and we're going to see what God would say to us from it. Oh, Lord, our God, this is your word. It is holy and perfect and right. God, you have spoken this to us and inspired men to write these words down. And so we, we recognize now that if we have any hope for reading and understanding it, any hope for being changed by it and applying it to our lives, any hope of seeing ourselves from it and understanding who you are and seeing Christ from it, then, then it will only be because of your illuminating work in our hearts. We are the problem, not your word. So help us, God, by the power of your spirit to um, see clearly and hear loudly and understand those things that you would say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So you see very plainly in verses 1 through 4. Look, verse 1, what is he doing? He makes a generalized statement about the nature of the office of high priest. That he's not chosen from among men, he's appointed to act on behalf of men and in relation to God. Why does he go to God on their behalf? In order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the definition of what it meant to be a priest in the Old Testament. A priest from and for men to God. Then he begins to give the two primary responsibilities or qualifications for serving in that office. Number one, he must be able to sympathize. He can deal gently, verse 2, with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. I think primarily in view, his being beset with weakness is sin, that he can understand their tendency to sin because he shares that sin. That's clarified in verse 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Also, I think it has in view weakness beyond sin. I think that's why it's separated and given as a separate, distinct reality. He must be able to sympathize with the human condition. 
what it is to be hungry and thirsty and no need, what it is to be ignorant and in need of learning and care, what it is to grow, what it is to mature, right? Many of those things cause and lead to sin in our lives. But the reality is, I think it is a very generalized requirement that he must be able to be sympathetic with his um, people, those on whose behalf he goes to God by way of understanding the condition of their weakness in all respects, ultimately found in their weakness and proneness to sin. So that he goes and he makes sacrifice for himself and then he is qualified to make sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. Um, The second thing you see, he picks it up in verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself. This has already been mentioned or alluded to in verse 1, the general description of the office, that he's appointed by God from among men. The idea here is, secondly, that in order to be qualified for the office of priest, this is not an exhaustive list, it's just the two things he's dealing with here, that you couldn't decide on your own. I I would like to be a priest, and um, I think I'd be good at that, and I I think I'm gifted in that way, so I'm just going to be a priest. His point is that there was a divinely instituted law by which priests were found. They weren't found, they were known. That God was the one who instituted that regulation, and that only the sons of Aaron, the sons of Levi, were those men who were to be priests, and they were all to serve in that office. So it was a very distinct and particular list of people. And they were qualified for that office office simply in part by being born of this lineage to this person of a son of this man. But it was not man's idea. Their very existence in that line and that qualifying them for the office is by the design and appointment of God. So so that's, that's really all he says in verses 1 through 4. Now let's go to verse 5 and let's begin to consider then the calling of Jesus to this office. Because his point now is going to be that it is a greater calling. That he is called similarly, but with enough distinctiveness that it is a superior calling. Now first, look at what it says. So also, verse 5, that's how it begins. Now there is a tendency for us to read this and think that the main point of the author is to draw similarities. As Aaron and his sons served like this and were called like this and were effective because of this, so also Christ is. And there is a sense of the similarity being um, alluded to. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God. But that's where the similarity ends. What he's saying is, yes, Jesus is qualified to serve as high priest because he did not decide in himself that he was going to serve as high priest. God decided and divinely appointed him to the office and the task in the same way that God has always decided who and appointed certain men to that office as is clear in the Old Testament. That's the similarity that he's making to show that yes, Jesus is qualified. He's also going to go down later and show that he's qualified by way of his compassion and sympathy. And we're, we're going to get there in, in a moment, it's a, that it's a greater identification with the people. We'll get there. But his point is to say that, yes, Jesus is qualified. And so there is that similarity. But he wants to, through the similarities, 
more so draw their attention to the stark contrasts and the distinction of Jesus' calling. That he is qualified, but in fact, he is more qualified. His argument is not so much how Jesus was like the sons of Levi, as it is how different from the sons of Levi Jesus was in serving as a priest and even in being appointed to that office. So yes, like them, he meets the basic requirements, but that is about where the similarities end. Now, what are the differences specifically that the text gives us in defending his uh, the, the author's idea here that he's a greater high priest and has a greater calling. Note carefully that he, as he is, we've seen him do time and again already just in the first four chapters, he uses scripture. So he's making his argument based on the word of God. What does he do? He begins by saying it's a greater calling, number one, because it is a dual calling. So that in the Old Testament, a priest was not a king. And a king could not serve as priest. In fact, when you go to places like what we saw as we studied through 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 13, where King Saul actually served as a priest and performed priestly functions, and the result of that was that Samuel prophesied to him and told him that you will now lose your kingdom because of this thing that you've done. So it did not end well. Priests and kings were distinct offices that God appointed men to, and they were always separate. However, we see, first of all, by the use of his quotation, the first one, who is it that appoints him to be priest? Well, it is the king. The one who says to him from Psalm 7, you are my son. I mean, I'm sorry, Psalm 2-7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, in case, that, that's not as evident to us as it would be to the Hebrews that were listening to this because they knew all too well what Psalm 1 and 2 were. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. So if you go back to Psalm 2, and you can just listen, in Psalm 2, verse 6, before the verse that he quotes here, listen to what it says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree. What decree is that? It is the royal decree that this one is to be king. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of, your, of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with Fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What's he saying by quoting Psalm 2-7 here, where God declares to appoint him to this office because he is his son? He is saying that he is appointed not only as priest, but as a king. A king priest to serve in this dual office. Okay? It's a royal psalm that he's using, and it clearly articulates, the author here is ascribing it to Jesus for us, but it clearly articulates then that the Son has been made by the Father king over all things. That's very important. Also, you see in the second quotation, he says, also, this is from Psalm 110, you're a priest forever. So that you're a priest, you're a king and you are now a priest. So he's this dual office that the Old Testament priests did not enjoy. 
That is further articulated or substantiated by the use of after the order of Melchizedek. That is repeated again in verse 10. He was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to run back into this guy, so I don't want to spend too much time on him today. But what I do want you to know is he's a pretty nebulous figure in Scripture. There's only one other place in the Bible where he comes onto the scene, and he comes on as the king of Salem who was made by God a priest. It's very interesting because priests and kings were separate functions. The only, the only one of those that we know about that God appointed was Melchizedek. He's a unique figure in the Bible, and importantly so. We also know that he did not, was not appointed by way of his heritage or lineage. He was not of the sons of Levi. We are not given a day of his death in the record of Scripture. Not that he lived and ministered forever, but to allude to us and foreshadow for us the continuing ministry of Christ, who is after a priest, after the order of Melchizedek, whose priestly ministry would never come to an end, right? So we're going to see some of those things tied together. But he was a king priest, the king of Salem, made by God a priest from among men. And his point is not that Jesus was in the lineage or of the heritage of Melchizedek, but that he was appointed by God in a unique way as Melchizedek was unto the priesthood, namely to serve as a dual office holder, a priest and a king. That's the first thing. And friends, that changes the game. It makes his priesthood superior to those priests in the Old Testament, for they were not the king. They did not rule. They did not have authority. They were only the priests subject to the king. Okay, but he was the priest king. Now, the second distinction that it gives us is not only that he is by divine appointment to a dual office, but that he is divinely appointed to these dual offices forever. So that the the number one limitation of the Old Testament priests was the fact that they were sinners And because of their sin, they would all enjoy and find one day death. Their their office of, of minister and priest could not continue eternally. Every one of them died, which which brought about the need for a new priest or for another priest to come and finish what they could not finish, to come and do what they could not do, to keep up the ministry that they could not perform. Their their the nature of their office was necessarily limited in its ability, function, and so forth, because it was finite, because it was temporal. Unlike the priestly office of Jesus, not only is it a divine appointment to these two offices, look at what he says, you are a priest forever, eternally. Notice in verse 9, and we'll get here in a minute, the resulting benefits. Because he is a priest forever, he becomes the source of eternal salvation. Because the ministry of the great high priest, Jesus, by virtue of its appointment, God designed him to serve eternally, then we can enjoy the benefits that flow through him eternally. They never cease. It's very important that you make that connection, and we'll make it again at the end. So it's a dual office, and both of those offices are held by Christ eternally. What a great high priest we have. But the second thing I want you to see as we consider how it's superior is that it enjoys a greater identification. Jesus 
can identify with and sympathize with us in a way that no man from among men ever could. And that may seem difficult to you. To be honest, in some ways it does to me. How is it that Jesus, who is fully God, can fully understand what it's like to be so limited, to be such a failure, to be so frail and beset with weakness, to use the language of the first four verses? Remember, he's now articulating in verses 7 and 8, and even the beginning in 9, what he has already given as a qualification in verses 2 and 3. He's moving out. This is now the the evidence that Jesus can identify with us as the priests of Aaron could. So again, similarity, yes, he's qualified. Yes, he's sympathetic, but even more so. And we may struggle with that reality. How is it that Jesus could possibly identify with us more in a better way, in a superior way than a true frail man? Well, on on the one hand, that thought is because of a misunderstanding of the dual natures of Christ. He was a full man. And we cannot explain how those two natures dwelt fully in him. I'm not even going to begin to try. But I am going to say that we tend to think of Jesus more as God in his person than we do as a human. But the scripture goes to great lengths to help us think carefully about the human nature of Christ. Think about his being beset with weakness in that way. When he was scratched, he bled. When he was born, he was an infant who was fully dependent upon human parents to sustain him. As he grew, he needed food. As he began to learn, he needed knowledge and growth. He was fully limited in that sense. He set his omniscience and his omnipresence and some of those deity realities aside willingly. He left them with God as it were, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped in order to humiliate himself, in order that he might be fully a human, fully a man. And friends, the point of this text is that if you're not fully a man, you cannot be fully identified with men, and you are not qualified to stand before God on their behalf. It's, it's, we, we've already talked about this. It's why, we, it's why it's so important that we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the bodily ascension of Christ. Because a human is in the heavenly, standing before the throne of God on our behalf. There's a man there interceding for us and mediating between the wrath of God against our sin and us. What a beautiful picture that is. And his point is that Jesus knows. How does he know? Think about it like this. And I made allusion to this the last time we talked about it. But the experience of temptation that Jesus knows is not lesser than the temptation that we know it's actually greater. Here's why. Um, as, as, as one famous theologian put it, you can't know the full strength of a German army until you try to fight it. Right? And no matter how much you and I fight against sin, the devil, and evil, ultimately all of us, at one point or another, we give in. And we are overcome. The only man, fully man, who has endured the full onslaught of temptation is the one who fully fought it perfectly, Jesus. So that he fought temptation in a way that you can't even fathom because he never gave into it. So that his experience of temptation and his ability to sympathize with us who are experiencing temptation is actually far greater than anything we could have ever experienced. Notice also the language here. It says, in the days of his flesh... Verse 7, I think that just is in his humanity. 
He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Notice that it affected him. Many people want to say this is exclusively talking about his time in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. I think that's in view here, but I do not think it is exclusively limited to that. I think Jesus experienced this kind of difficulty on many different levels throughout all of his flesh, that general term, as it were, as a human, as a child, growing, learning, all of those things. He cries out to God with loud cries and tears to the one he knows is able to save him from death. Notice this also. He was heard because of his reverence. This is very interesting. The language for reverence there is fear. A holy fear that leads to obedience. What it's saying is that in the midst of all of his temptation, as he faced the full onslaught of evil and wickedness in his own life and the temptation that it brought... Like in the Garden of Gethsemane would be one example. Father, let this cup pass from me, right? Ultimately, his cries were heard, but think about it. The one who could save him from death did not. He let him die. He sent him to the cross in spite of his pleas, and Jesus went. That's unbelievable. In other words... He knows to such a degree, not only that he has fought the full onslaught of wickedness and temptation, but in the midst of that, he knows what it is to be completely subject to the will of God, not to yourself. To bear the brunt of all of that because you are utterly committed to and resigned in your heart and life with perfect obedience to do only that which God has appointed for you. None of us have suffered temptation that way. None of us. He was heard because of his fear that led to obedience. But in being heard, obedience and submission was required. That's the beautiful picture that's being painted. Friends, Jesus can identify with you better than I can, better than Chase can, better than Jody and Jack can, better than your spouse can. Children, Jesus can identify with your struggles, with your weakness, better than your parents can, better than your friends can. You need to be encouraged by the truth today that we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize, but that in all respects was tempted as we are and knows what it is to be tempted and even more so. What a beautiful picture. Charles Spurgeon um, spoke about, uh, we'll we'll get to that in a moment. Let let me point out one other thing real quick. Notice the very beginning of verse 9. And through this temptation, through this submission and obedience, he was made perfect in order to serve in this office and accomplish the benefits. What does it mean that he was made perfect? We've already seen this before. Not that he needed to be made perfect in nature. He was God. He was fully obedient. He was without sin. Right? Not not that he needed, but that he needed to be made perfect in terms of his capacity to serve as high priest. In order that he might be sympathetic, he had to humiliate himself to the point of undergoing this type of temptation. Because in order to stand in the gap for us as our high priest, he must not only be A man, he must have suffered as men do and be fully sympathetic to their frailty and their plight. Charles Spurgeon, I read this to you last time. I'm going to read it again in case you missed it, weren't here, don't remember it, or weren't listening. 
He said not that Christ needed to be made perfect in nature, but perfect in his capacity to be the captain of our salvation, complete in all of the offices which he sustains toward his redeemed people. He must be a sufferer that he might be a sympathizer. And hence his sufferings made him perfect. He goes on later to say, is it not wonderful that the Christ who is head over all things, the king, could not be perfected for this work of ruling or for the work of saving except by the work of suffering. He stooped to conquer, not because there was any sin in him, but that he might be a sympathetic ruler over his people. He must experience sufferings like those of his subjects. And that he might be a mighty savior, he must be himself encompassed with infirmity. Friends, What he is saying is that the truth of this text is that Jesus willingly submitted himself to this kind of temptation and suffering that it brought in order to be qualified to be the eternal source of salvation as the great high priest for God's people in order to save you. He didn't just become a man. He didn't just have a bad day where he was beaten, bruised, and killed. That was horrendous. Friends, he suffered being beset by weakness. The God, the ruler of all things, even the temptation of sin, fully fighting it in perfection in order to be identified with you so that he could save you. What a humiliation and what an identification. My time is gone. We've got some other things to do. Let me briefly point to you, uh, point you to the greater benefit that is received This is in verses 9 and 10. Now moving out again from verse 5, verses 9 and 10, they correlate with verse 1, where he gives a general description of what the priest does. Now verses 9 and 10, he speaks how what Jesus as high priest does in that office is better. Pretty plain. Here's what he says. And being made perfect, we've already talked about, what happens? He became the source of, of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, this is the same conclusion that you see. Go ahead and mark it in your Bibles. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 25. As this argue, these arguments for the great high priestly ministry of Jesus continue, they find their culmination in chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, so this is the consequence of his perfect calling and perfect identification with us as priest. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the truth. That's where we're going. That's the hope of the benefits that we receive. That's the joy and satisfaction that we have, that he is able to save to the uttermost, that he has become being made perfect for this office, the source of eternal salvation. Two things. Notice that the salvation is eternal, not temporal. Whatever it is that the Old Testament priests accomplished by way of all of those blood sacrifices and offerings, it was always limited. Because they would sin again and another sacrifice would have to be made because it was not the blood of Christ. Because of their imperfection to serve in that office, it was limited. Jesus has served and will continue to serve, making an eternal propitiation for our sins. It is done. 
Secondly, notice that the salvation, and this is a consequence of that eternal reality, it is not only retrospective, but because it's eternal, it is prospective. In other words, the Old Testament priests could only atone for sins committed. So that when you sinned again, you had to have blood atonement again. Jesus, though, friends, has made an eternal sacrifice once for all time with a superior blood that not only covers all of the sins of the past, covers all of the sins of the moment that you may not even know to confess, and every sin that you might ever in the future commit. Glory be to God for the great high priest that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because we must understand he gets to that conclusion. His ability to save eternally and to the uttermost here and in 725. It is because God has appointed him to the office of high priest and to serve there as king priest forever. Fully identified with his people sympathetic to their cause, fully a human, standing in the gap for humans, and his standing there for us will never end. Friends, if you've never been overwhelmed with gratitude for your salvation, let me simply encourage you to inwardly reflect on the eternal ministry of Jesus. That he stands there now pleading your case. He stands there now praying before God the Father in ways that you don't even know to pray. He stands there holding you secure. And friends, this becomes the basis of the doctrine of the eternality of our salvation. Notice that it is an eternal salvation. It is not one that can be lost because the only way it could be lost is if the Jesus that has carried us to God and accomplished salvation for us before God ever ceased to serve in that way. And friends, I got news for you. I will never be lost, not because I will remain steadfast, but because Jesus will never leave the throne where he intercedes on my behalf. His blood will always be sufficient for me. He will always hold me. He will always plead my case. He will always be sympathetic to my frailty. And he will always mediate the wrath of God against me and my sin and give to me life. He will save me to the uttermost. And friends, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll save you to the uttermost as well. But if you believe in anything else, you're dangerously in danger. You're in great danger of, of dying, of being lost. Friends, let us look to Christ, the great high priest of our faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of these pages, these words. Um, what a beautiful thing it is to think about what you've accomplished for us in Christ and to recognize that he serves as the greatest high priest, able to identify with us in a way that no man can and able to serve in an office by your appointment and design, perfectly and eternally. God, may we look only to Christ for salvation. And God, even as now, as we enter into this time, God, may we be ever mindful and thankful for the eternal sacrifice that he's made as our priest and king. In his name we pray, amen.